we're still stuck in this where we treat, we think of people and treat people like machines to be optimized, to be tweaked. The problem is at a th- that doesn't work for human performance. They're not managing machines. They are managing these growing, these developing imperfect human beings who have needs and are facing obstacles and really want to be successful. And if they're not, then that means there's something going on that you need to solve for them or help them with. And when you get that shift made, things start to, things start to change. Welcome to the Voices of HR podcast presented by HR Morning. I'm your host, Berta Aldrich, outperformance coach and author of Winning the Talent Shift. Each week, I have candid conversations with HR practitioners, thought leaders, and C-suite executives to tease out what works and what doesn't in human resources, people strategy, corporate culture, and more. Jason Lauritsen is an author, a keynote speaker, and a leader trainer and has been named the top 100 HR tech influencer by HR Executive Magazine, a top 100 HR influencer by Engagedly, and a top 100 global employee engagement and experience influencer by Inspiring Workplaces. He also is the author of two books, Unlocking High Performance, How to Use Performance Management to Engage and Empower Employees to Reach Their Full Potential, and Social Gravity, Harnessing the Natural Laws of Relationships. Both are available on Amazon. Jason, welcome to Voices of HR. Berta, I am delighted to be here. Well, we are delighted to have you here because this is a hot topic and you have a unique perspective and I cannot wait for our Voices of HR audience to hear all about it. So let's let's just kick this thing off. Let's have you share your opinion because it's a strong opinion that you feel that once a year performance employee appraisals are not just flawed, but are actually harmful to an organization. Tell us more. I tell you what, there's, it's a lot. I mean, I, I wrote a whole book about it. I feel so strongly <laughs> about this topic. So I, I think let, let's do it on two levels. The, the, I think at the most basic level, the process itself has some really serious design flaws. One being that we often anchor it to ratings, numbers. There's a fair amount of, of data out there about rater bias that, you know, rating when an individual, when a human evaluates the performance of another human and puts a number on it, that that rating says more about the bias of the rater than it does about the person being evaluated. So a performance evaluation is actually evaluating the manager, I guess. I don't know, but that doesn't work. It's not how learning and growth work either. Once a year feedback. Can you imagine if, imagine sending your child to an elementary school and they said, we don't, we only do one test a year. We're going to only evaluate learning one time a year at the very end of the year, and we'll give them a grade, and then on you go. Like, no evaluation, no feedback, right? That That's ridiculous. We know that ridiculous. human learning requires constant and regular feedback. And so, I mean, I could go on and on and on. So the process mm-hmm. itself is flawed. But worse than that is that we have decades of employee engagement research, employee sentiment research that tells us that 
the the primary things that consistently and reliably drive employee engagement and employee engagement by the way by my definition is the degree to which an employee willingly um is willing and able to perform up to their potential so they're they're mm-hmm. willing to do it so they're choosing to do it and they're able to do it um it's all about performance and so we have all this engagement data that says that in order for me to do that, I need to feel valued, cared for, appreciated, and trusted at work. I mean, there's you can go great places to work, Gallup, best places to work surveys, you name it. They all say the same thing. They come down to these same basic things. And what those things are telling us is that employees experience work as a relationship. Right? Those are relational mm-hmm. things care and trust and appreciation and feeling valued, they need to feel like they're in a healthy relationship with work. That means we have to build healthy relationships. And you take this tool, this once a year tool, where we save up all of our feedback for the whole year (laughs) and we dump it on you all at once. And that makes you defensive, which is anti-learning, and it doesn't actually help. And so can you imagine if that's how we showed up in any relationship, right? It doesn't work. And so on a very fundamental level, it actually violates the relationship. It violates trust. It violates, um, it doesn't make people feel valued. It doesn't make you feel appreciated. It actually does the opposite when we do it the way that we've traditionally designed it. So that's a long answer to it, but it's a big question. Why is this broken? The list is very long, but those are some of the the biggest answers. And I think to put an exclamation point on that, my favorite is getting calls from individuals, could be an executive, could be a senior manager, and they've never heard the feedback before. I think that's always the worst, right? Not only is it a list, but it's a list of things that you've never heard before. So you've never had the opportunity to actually get better at it or say, here's where I need training. And it does feel like a little bit of a firing squad, right? At the end of the year. It sure now, does. You have well, also the said- other, The other thing is that, and I think the other faulty part of the design is that many, many, many organizations still connect this albatross to compensation decisions. Mm-hmm. The bottom line is I think that's the other part of this that makes it feel- I think particularly gross to employees is that this process by itself is terrible. And then, oh, by the way, on top of it, you're now using this terrible process to impact my ability to support myself or my family or to advance my career. And that's just insult to injury. So there's a lot, a lot of bad stuff. So I'm sitting here listening to you and all I keep thinking is about the horror stories that I've heard. So just for our audience, I mean, our audience is HR. They hear horror stories all the time. Um, that's their job. What is the worst example that you have heard about a year-end appraisal? How did it go? The one that I love to talk about is it was at an organization I worked at where this was the COO of the organization, mm-hmm. and he had a person on his team who he had been working with for a long time. And so very literally every year, all he did, he would cut and paste the exact same content from one year to the next into the appraisal and then submit it through. Exact same content. 
And he just, they, neither one of them cared. They were fairly senior people. Neither one of them cared. And so, you know, it, it, HR was like, why, why fight this? And so, you know, when you think about that, it's like, okay, if the executives at the top of the organization mm-hmm. think so little of this process, mm-hmm. that this is how they treat it, why are we doing it? Like, what are we doing? I don't understand. I think your point about it reflecting more of them than it does the person, right? Or sometimes even the direction of the organization, if there are layoffs coming or if there's a firing coming, right? You see it all the time in organizations who want to rid themselves um, of a group of employees or mass layoffs. And so all of a sudden, They've always received great performance appraisals, and then all of a sudden, the numbers decline significantly. So it does. It and I always tell people your your end appraisal is not a reflection. It just can't be for a lot of the the reasons that you've mentioned. So let's start talking about solutions because we have a group of HR professionals that listen to this podcast. And I suspect a majority of them are sitting there thinking to themselves, okay, we are so entrenched in this annual review, or even maybe they've even gotten to quarterly reviews. And so they've actually progressed a little bit and are sitting there thinking, I can't imagine the work that it's going to take coming off of COVID and everything else that they have prioritized, the work that it's going to take to change the appraisal process. Can So can you lead us through maybe one, two, or three things that they can do to help themselves progress over a period of time? Or should they just rip off the Band-Aid and and change everything? So much of that depends on the circumstance. So I I completely get that you're buried, right? You're buried. You've got a thousand (laughs) other priorities. We know this. We know this process sucks. But... But, and, and, and here's the big but, the big but in it is that everybody hates it. Like we, we, I mean, we've, I, at an organization where we actually did this work, we surveyed and we found out, we surveyed like employees, leaders, and we actually included HR in the survey, get feedback. Mm-hmm. And guess what? Managers hate it. Employees hate it. And HR hates it. Everybody hates it. But then the moment you say, we're going to just stop doing it then, or we're going to take it away for some reason the leaders grab it. They're like, well, what, wait a minute. What? We can't do that. Right. Cause it's the one time a year I do something around management, around performance. And that's the, that is the, the, the problem. And so, so if we're going to be pragmatic about it, there's play the long game, number one. And if you want to think about the long game and replacement, and this is not, I, I usually don't I, I don't show my book like hardcore, but one of the things I put in the book because it was so helpful for me and I now wanted wait, to wait, which one? Out, because you have unlocking to... high performance. Unlocking high okay. performance. Unlocking Pretty high much performance. everything I'll talk about today is in unlocking high performance because we're okay. talking about performance. And this was sort of my I guess my love letter to HR, like here's how you un here's how you fix this. It's not supposed to be a an appraisal or an event, it's a system. Mm. But there's the last section in the book is a section about design and how to use design process to move your organization through a process mm-hmm. to arrive at a better set of processes and outcomes and, and skills that are needed to manage performance. But it's a design and design starts with 
what are we trying to solve for? Who are we trying to solve for? What do they need? What are we trying to accomplish? Defining that and then starting to work on solutions. And so it is a long process. You should not just go buy something from another technologist or whatever that will not solve your problem. So, so what I would recommend instead is you don't need to fight that battle in the short run. In the short run, if you have an appraisal process, the one thing I would highly, highly recommend, well, two things, if you can get done, if there's two hills to die on, it is get the numbers out, get the ratings out. So remove those. Remove the ratings. You can okay. still do an, a, an assessment or an appraisal, but make it narrative. Narrative is where the meat is anyways. That's where the information is. Get rid of the ratings because the ratings are so flawed on so many levels. Mm. Talk about that in the book too. If you want that, it gives you the references on how to fight back, what the research says about that. But that's one. And two is decouple it from compensation. And we can talk more about that in a minute if you can, but decouple it. Put them on different cycles. Um, I know you're thinking, well, how do we make compensation decisions without performance appraisals? We'll talk about that in a minute. But those are the two things that I would in the short run fight for. But even if you can't do that, what you should be doing instead is focus on equipping managers with the skills to be managing and coaching performance on a regular real-time basis. And so that's that's where you that's really where you should put your effort because what you want happening is you want managers who are creating the conditions for performance that are managing and coaching performance on a day-to-day week-to-week basis because performance literally happens in a day-to-day mm-hmm. basis and so you need to equip them with the skills on how to create clarity about expectations how to provide effective feedback how to identify and diagnose issues when they come up and deal with them at the moment they're happening because otherwise it's just going to become a bigger and bigger and bigger issue and if they're doing all of those things when they get to the performance appraisal process all that's going to be and all it should ever be is sort of a year in review we're going to sit down let's review kind of the journey we've been on let's talk about the wins Let's talk about the things that we've agreed that we want to work on next year. And let's put most of our focus on how we're going to perform next year, what our focus is going to be, what we need to learn next year. And so if you do, if you're managing throughout the year, then nothing should be a surprise in that appraisal. Now, if you don't have the luxury, if you know, if it's coming up, you're coming up on it, you don't have a lot of time at the very, very least, Encourage your managers to have some calibration conversations with their people ahead of the actual appraisal itself. Have the conversations, talk through the year, get on the same page, and then just create the appraisal almost as a, as a documentation of that conversation. It's at the end of it. That way, it's not a surprise to the employee. It should feel like a collaborative process between the manager and employee. So that, that's a bunch of ways to make it less harmful. So I hear a couple of things coming out of that. And that was number one, prepare your leaders for the change and to become much more of a coach, hands-on, day-to-day, and not wait for even a quarterly conversation or a weekly conversation. I think, but having said that, most people in manager roles have either not been trained or prepared adequately 
to even have these conversations. There is so much content out there about how best to give feedback. And I always think about it as if you care about the individual, that's where you start. Or if it's part of their expectation at the beginning of the year, right? You said you wanted to get better at X. I just saw you do Y. Let's talk about the difference. So number one, how best can you prepare a group of employees, the leaders for this conversation or to actually change their, I guess it's their their management approach or their leadership approach? Yeah. What a big question. Um, it is a big question. I think, I think fundamentally I, I spend so much time working with, leaders and managers on mindset shift because mm-hmm. i think it it starts on that fundamental of a level that so much of what we have been trained in if you have had training or what you've experienced as a, even if you've never had any training you just kind of kept getting promoted what you've experienced is a production style of management that was mm-hmm. born out of the industrial revolution in an era where we were taking people off the farm, putting them in factories Mm -hmm. to basically do jobs that were better suited for machines, but we didn't have the technology to build those machines yet. So we had to get people to behave like those machines. And the invention that we had to create in order to get people to do that was something called management. So very literally, the invention of management was to get, and Gary Hamill said this most beautifully, I quote him all the time, is to get human beings to perform like semi-programmable robots. Mm -hmm. And so that's the legacy of management. And so we've, and that's, we've had trouble breaking that legacy because that Mm -hmm. was, that's where it started. And we've just been making small tweaks on that. And the problem with that is that we're still stuck in this where we treat, we think of people and treat people like machines to be optimized, to be tweaked. And it shows up most commonly like when 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 someone's not performing well, like you can see it vividly there because like what happens if you have a piece of machinery that's not performing well, what do you do? You fix the machine or you replace the machine. Mm-hmm. Right? That's general, like what else, what else do you do? Well, what do we do with most employees? We... They're not performing. We have performance improvement plans. We try to fix the machine, fix the employee, or else we're going to replace you with a different machine. Mm-hmm. The problem is at a th- that doesn't work for human performance. Works great for machines because that's how machines work. But the problem is for human performance, it doesn't work that way. So I teach this concept called the cultivation mindset, which comes out of more so how farmers and gardeners think about their mm-hmm. job. In that we don't have to force or or coerce performance. People are inherently and naturally motivated to grow and develop. Develop. That's in our DNA. DNA. If you've ever been around a small child, we know this to be true. They learn like sponges. We learn how to speak and walk by just being around other humans. Right. It's pretty incredible. So we are we are hardwired for that, and I think people also fundamentally will always choose to succeed over failing when given the means and opportunity to do so. I think every person I've ever met, if you gave them the opportunity to choose between, hey, you can succeed today 
or you can fall on your face, they're always going to choose succeed. And so when you take those two things together, then our job as managers is not to, we don't need to evaluate, to fix, to, you know, coerce people into performance. We need people to think about their roles as setting the environment to foster growth, to cultivate growth. We need to understand what do people need? Um, what drives performance? We need to understand what obstacles are in the way and we need to get those obstacles out of the way so that people can do the work. And so, so this is a long way of answering your question, but I think it starts with, it's almost like a software upgrade that we need to make for managers and leaders. We need to help them understand that their job isn't about they're not managing machines. They are managing these growing, these developing, imperfect human beings who have needs and are facing obstacles and really want to be successful. And if they're not, then that means there's something going on that you need to solve for them or help them with. And when you get that shift made, things start to things start to change. And then you can then you have to obviously equip them with the tools, simple tools on how to do that work, right? How to mm-hmm you know, how to make lines in your garden and how to pull the weeds. And, you know, if we go back to that analogy, you still need those, you have to do that work and you have to have those skills. But if you don't understand what kind of, if you think if you treat your garden like a machine, it's not going to produce much of a, of a harvest. So um, that's where it starts. So start with upgrading your leadership. Yep. And shifting their mindset. Yep. To adapt. Yep. From machine to more like a farmer. Yep. Cultivating and learning. Now, step number two. So you've got your leadership aligned. Now I just keep thinking about the beginning of the year conversation. Yep. So exactly we're talking right. about the end of the year conversation. What kind of advice would you give to these leaders who have shifted their mindset? They're preparing to be a better leader of their people throughout the year. What kind of conversation should they have at the beginning of the year? Well, there's the kind of conversation is about what are you, what kind of outcomes or goals do we have for the conversation? And so I would say there's two, two big things that you want to do in that conversation in terms of what are my objectives? Number one is to achieve clarity of expectations. And so that there's perfect clarity as much as it can be achieved between the leader and the employee on what needs to be accomplished, how we're going to go about accomplishing it and, and what we're, how we're going to measure it. And that doesn't, I mean, pick whatever timeline, three months, six months, 12 months, whatever it is that makes sense for that particular role could be a month or a week. I mean, whatever. The second objective is to build relationship, right? Build trust Make sure that they're, you know, you're, you're doing it in a way that advances the relationship and strengthens that. And to do that, you want to, to the extent you can, you want to involve the, the employee in the conversation, in collaboratively sorting through what it's going to look like. So sometimes that is, sometimes that can be actually creating those goals or objectives together, right? together talking those through and agreeing on what is a reasonable goal and why and calibrating prioritizing sometimes that's not an option sometimes your goals get passed down you're in sales here's your number 
Okay. This is the number. Neither one of us have any influence over that necessarily, or maybe it just is what it is. So now let's, okay, how are we going to get to that? That's the number. Let's break it down and let's talk about the strategies or the approaches or the how, and let's collaboratively define that. So it's, it's, you think about it in the way that you would set or approach any important goal with any other significant relationship in your life. You know, I, I, I think about if like if my wife and I had a particular goal for our family, whatever it was, some, we, you know, we really want to go on a trip to Europe, you know, take our trip kids to Europe for two weeks. What's that going to look like? We would sit down and plan that out together. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't show up and say, we're going to Europe here's what we need to do. Here's what you're going to do. Here's what they're going to do. And good luck. Let me know what you need. All right. That's not how you do it in a relationship. You do it together. And so, um, so I think those are the two big things, but the key is build the relationship, achieve clarity. All right. So now I'm thinking about an individual who is not very self-aware. And so at the beginning of the year, they have a deficit in a certain aspect of their performance. And this is where I think most leaders shy away from having candid conversations that are caring, that are helpful, because that's your job as a leader, right? To be helpful. So can you walk us through a situation? And and this is for HR as well, right? Because HR still wants to manage performance, right? They're responsible for the productivity of a group of people. So real quick, how would you encourage the leader to have a deficit conversation at the beginning of the year? Well, it depends. It depends on the circumstance that, that led to that. So the thing with adopting a cultivation mindset, what I teach is that If you have an employee who's not performing, that is your fault. Mm. It's not their fault. That is your fault because one of you've done, um, there's something along the way that you have allowed to happen or you have done, you've made some decisions, you put that employee in a spot where they are, they are, they're not succeeding. Mm. And we know that they would prefer to be succeeding. So they're not choosing not to succeed. And so mm-hmm. what what are we going to do to address that? And so that so where I always advise leaders, managers, HR to start is the first thing you have to do if you have a deficit, performance deficit, is you have to diagnose what's going on. Like what is the issue? And and right, the first thing we often do, the instinct is, well, how do I fix that person? Mm. It's like, well, Let's start with a different assumption. Let's start with an assumption that there's nothing wrong with this person. But this person has some needs that are unmet that would allow them to perform, or there's an obstacle that's in their way that they cannot navigate around. So that's what we have to figure out is we have to have a conversation about this because achieving those expectations is a non-negotiable for both of us. Mm-hmm. 
My job is to make sure you're performing. Your job is to meet those expectations. So both of us are not meeting our expectation in this moment. It's not the employee. We're in it together. And so let's figure it out. There's five drivers of performance. If you want to, we can talk about them in more detail, but they, in order of importance, go clarity, feedback, ability, capability, and want to, desire. Mm -hmm. We usually start with the last one because we think that's what's wrong. And that is almost never what is wrong. Mm. It is almost always a lack of clarity. Mm. Almost always. And so when you address that, everything changes. And I, Bert, I can give you, if you don't mind, I can tell a quick story to illustrate how this Oh, we'd love that. Yeah. Love it. From my own experience, because most of this I learned on the wrong side of things. Um, I had good, I had a, I had a couple good leaders, and I learned from them, like how okay, this is why this works mm-hmm. good. So for me, what it was is this was my very first HR role. I came into, I came into HR uh, as a recruit. I was running a recruiting team, so I was hired as like a recruiting manager. I had been running a. a uh, a headhunting agency before this. So I came in, I'd never worked in HR. I'd never worked in a corporate environment. So I was a bull mm. in a China shot at chop. I didn't understand politics. I didn't understand all the dynamics or whatever. I was a sales guy and a recruiter, which means like, and I was taught if you're, you know, if you're a third party recruiter, you're taught you right. run over HR. Like you step oh. on the back of their necks as you're going to the hiring manager, because that's how you get people hired. It's terrible. And so And so here I am now in HR trying to make sense of all this. And I operate like a sales guy. And so I'd been there. I take over this underperforming team. And I think I, I don't remember what, how long it had been that I had been there, but I had, you know, I'd had to replace some people and systems and whatever. And I was, our team was like the, based on the numbers, we were crushing it. Mm. We were crushing it. Our numbers, like the like time to fill and and op- number of open jobs and our turnover of new hires, all of that, we're crushing it. And so I get my first ever performance appraisal. So it circles back to performance appraisals. First ever performance appraisal I've ever had. And, uh, and I'm walking in there like, this is going to be awesome. Like, this is what fives are. This, I mean, this is why they put a five on there. <laughs> For you. For, Jason. for this kind. Yeah. I just yeah. showed yeah. everyone what a five is. <laughs> You're welcome. And so I'm walking into the conversation with this. This is my mindset. And so, and of course I walk in, I sit down, my boss gives me the performance appraisal, the printed out, right? Cause that's how we do it. It's a sneak attack, right? You just, right. the first time you're going to see it's when you show up and, uh, and I get this so we go through it and she's giving me this, you know, my feedback and she, she gives me credit for all the good stuff, all this stuff. Like, yep, you're doing great on this. You're doing great on this, whatever. Thanks for all this. However, 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 turns out that, uh, my style of working was not rubbing my HR peers the right way. And so apparently there'd been sort of a steady stream of complaints and issues and grievances that had been coming to her nonstop. I was creating drama all over the place, I guess. Wow. Didn't know. Didn't know. Partly because I didn't care. I wasn't paying any attention to any of this. And, and so she docked my, she docked my rating fairly significantly for this. Mm. And I was like, wait a minute. 
you didn't tell me, you never told me that I needed to care about what these people thought of me. Like you didn't right. like, this wasn't anything that I, and I mean, I know that sounds completely naive as a guy that wrote a book about relationships and the important, like it sounds ridiculous now, <laughs> but I'm like, you never told me any of this was important. I didn't know I needed to care about what they thought about how I worked. I thought you just wanted me to perform because that's, these are the numbers you told me to hit. This is what we're doing. Mm -hmm. And so she's, and so she, she's like, apparently this is important. So she tells me it became abundantly clear to me in that moment, right? I'm that person that you just talked about performance deficit. So here's an executive has a person like me performance deficit. So what are you going to do to fix me? You didn't need to fix me. I just needed to know it was important, right? Because the moment that became clear to me, I fixed it. Mm -hmm. It changed because now right. I knew, oh, wait a minute. You're going to, you're measuring me on this. Mm -hmm. Okay, fine. Now I understand. I'll fix it. I'll make sure we're all feeling like a nice, happy family because it matters to you, I guess. I don't know how it helps my performance. This was my mindset at the time, but like this, this matters. I'll fix it. And so I tell you all of that to say that we're so quick to be like, okay, this, there's, how do we fix this employee? And 90% of the time, it's, it's either they aren't clear on what's expected or they had no idea that they weren't meeting the expectation. So it's a failure of clarity of expectation or a failure of feedback, almost always. And that's on the leader. Mm -hmm. I love that you are making the employee's performance a responsibility of the leader because far too often, what do you hear? It, it's, it's never their issue. It's always pointed back at the employee. And you're absolutely right. If there's a gap, their job is to help them fill it. Yep. To help them or, or blame, we blame employees or who else do we blame? We blame HR, mm -hmm. right? Because if HR didn't bring well, that's me such a crappy people, then I would yeah. be fine. It's like, well, yes. I keep sending you great people and guess what? None of them, none of them work. There's right. one common denominator in here. What is it? It's the manager. Yes. And it's not, and the thing is, it's not because it's a bad manager. It's just, they don't have the skills or the tools. They don't know. And until right. we fix that, we keep sending them people and these poor employees, right. Right. Get put in the meat grinder. Yeah. So you have leaders that need a mindset shift. You have clear expectations that need to be set clarity. Yep at the beginning of the year, yep. what should they do throughout the year to help employees be successful? Most important thing is regular scheduled one-on-one -on -one conversations mm -hmm. with their teams, every person on the team. Um, and that's important for a couple of reasons. It's important. Number one, because we talked earlier, work is a relationship. The most important mm -hmm lever driver of that relationship for majority of employees is the relationship they have with their immediate manager, right? The Hands immediate man, your immediate manager is mm -hmm. the relationship of the organization for a lot of employees. And so of course. you've got to invest in that. And the inconvenient part of this is that time is the currency of relationships. You, you cannot build relationships without an investment of time. And so and so you, you have to make time. So you make time, regular one-on-one -on -one meetings. Ideally, I would say in most circumstances, it's once a week. 
For some situations, it might be longer depending on the nature of the relationship, how long you've been working together, type of job, all of that. You have to make, sometimes it's once a day. If it's, you know, a five minute or 10 minute check-in with someone, depends on the, the nature of it. Primary, so there's two objectives you can have for, um, or you should have for a one-on-one meeting. Again, and it's very similar. Number one, um, build relationship build relationships. So it always starts with personal check-in, checking in on the human being, because if the human being's not okay, then all the other stuff doesn't really matter, right? If I'm struggling, if my marriage is falling apart, or I just found out that I have a best friend that's got cancer, or I've got a substance abuse issue that I'm wrestling with, whatever. If I have a severe well-being issue that I'm wrestling with, I, that, like we can have the best conversation about performance mm-hmm. that you've ever had. Doesn't matter because I don't have anything to give you anyways. And right. so you got to check in on the on the human, make sure the human's okay. So that's number one. Then number two is you have a conversation about performance. And I have a I have a sort of a template of questions that I recommend that managers mm-hmm. leaders start with. If you've not been having these conversations and you're going to start, there's um, four or five questions, depending on, depending on, um, how often you, you do them, but here's what they are. Number one is what's the most important thing we need to talk about today. Hmm. First question always, and there will be one-on-one meetings where you never get past that because whatever they bring up, if, if you sit down with your best person and they say, you know what, I got a call from a recruiter yesterday and it's really got Mm -hmm. me thinking like, okay, whatever else I thought I wanted to talk about is now not important to me. Let's talk about this and figure this out. So what's the most important thing we need to talk about today? Number two is what are the most significant things you've accomplished since the last time we met? The reason this is important is it, and actually, so I'm going to give you the the template here in a second. So let me go through all of that. What's the most important thing you've accomplished since the last time we met what are your top priorities to accomplish before next time we meet? What obstacles are you facing right now? Or what challenges are you facing? And what kind of support do you need from me? How could I be of more support to you in this next cycle? So those questions are the common questions. And what I recommend is that both the manager and the employee both complete this in advance. So you should have these questions. You know you're going to talk about these. You both do it in advance so that when you sit down, you're not only you're not only making sure that you're getting the most important things out, you're focusing on the most important things, but you're also doing an alignment exercise. This mm-hmm. is a check clarity check, right? So you're um, when that employee says, here's the top three most important things I've accomplished since the last time we met, and those three things you like, what are you doing? Because mm-hmm. I thought you were working on this thing. Well, guess what? You are failing as a leader in creating clarity about expectations. Mm-hmm. Should probably fix that. Yeah. Same thing with what are you going to accomplish? If what they say is different than what you had on your list, that's a failure of clarity. And so, so much of it boils down to clarity, but this is, if you get in a consistent rhythm of doing this, this alone, just the one-on-one meeting done well is, is just do that. And you, you will have so many fewer issues and concerns uh, to worry about from a performance perspective. I love those. And a couple of points on that. Don't cancel ever on your people ever, ever. 
I remember I had this leader who they just canceled them all the time. They scheduled them because they were required to do so. That was part of HR coming out and saying, best leaders do this. They have weekly one-on-ones. Inevitably, an hour before, two hours before, rarely a day before, canceled. Oh, you don't need it. You don't. Yes, I did need it. I needed the connection with my leader. So never cancel. And number two, I love your advice of employees participate, come to the meeting prepared because far too often on the employee side, they let the manager take control. And then they complain at the end of the year that their appraisal isn't what it was, what was expected. Right. So be an active participant in your own performance. Yeah. And it's just a matter of setting the expectation. So there's Mm -hmm. one of the hacks that I always, I, I recommend to managers is to have the employee schedule own the calendar invite for the one-on-one because Mm. that way at least for me if the it's the employee's time right it's not my time it's the employee's time with me as their leader and so this needs to be prioritized which also means if i'm going to go if i really need to reschedule then i have to go to them and say hey i need to reschedule this what Mm -hmm. works for you but there's just having to go ask the employee to reschedule it is sort of like it, it creates this layer of like, you don't do that easy cancel. Um, and so it, it at least psychologically tends to help a lot of managers hold to that time and be more serious about it. Um, because, you know, nothing says you're not important, like mm-hmm. canceling the one hour one a week or yeah. whatever that you had set aside for me. It's like, no, I, I have other more important things to do than to invest in a conversation with you. Like it's the worst thing you can do. Let's hit a couple of more hot topics because I think our HR pros and even our leaders are going to find so much benefit in this. So what does the perfect end of year conversation look like? And part two of that is going to be, and when do they hold their perfect merit and bonus compensation conversation? So the perfect end of year conversation is about the upcoming year. It's the perfect, because by the time you get to the end of the year, Mm -hmm. guess what? Performance for last year is over. Over. (laughs) And you managed it or you didn't, but there's nothing you're going to do in appraising it or assessing it or reviewing it that's going to change what happened last year. Mm -hmm. It is what it is. I hope you measured it so you at least know what happened. But the only thing we can change now is what happens ahead of us. And Mm -hmm. so the conversation should be entirely anchored around what did we learn this year? You know, where would we like to have maybe done some things differently that would inform what we're going to do next year? How would we show up differently for this the next time we do it or whatever? And then let's calibrate our goals and think about what we're going to do so that it should be all a forward leaning um, review or not even review end of year is all about getting ready for next year. Cause that's all that matters. Okay. That's how, that's how we stay in business is performance on the next play. And so, so that I'll leave that at that. As far as the merit, um, I think that the problem, the problem in answering that question is that so many organizations don't, we've, we've trapped ourselves in, this sort of 
what I call is sort of like a, a best practice cycle. Mm-hmm. That like there were some things that somebody decided to do back in 1949, and then somebody else started doing it, and then other people started doing it. And pretty soon, everybody's doing it, and it's this is what happens. We do this over and over. We take a practice that somebody did out of necessity, and we think there was some other intention behind it. We just keep mm-hmm. repeating, repeating, repeating. And so, comp practices have been like this is this is what's happened to us. So we're boxed into all these different practices, mm-hmm. and. I think you have to, everything starts with what's your compensation philosophy. When so many organizations don't do this, they don't have the conversations like, how are we going to pay? Um, what do we believe about pay? What do we think pay should do? Um, how do we want to compete? All of these things. And then from there, you make a decision. But right. I think there's just such a lack of intention and such a lack of clarity around what we're doing. So mm-hmm. get clear about your philosophy and your intentions, and then sort out how you're going to approach it and what the right cycle is. Because there's infinite number of, of good ways to do it that comply with the law. Drop the mic on that one. Okay, so we are coming to the end. We're almost ready for rapid fire questions, which is an audience favorite. But before we go there, you had put out an offer. I believe it was on social media, maybe, for... Um, to offer one-on-one sessions to your followers and you had a response. Tell us about the response and tell us about real quickly what you learned. Yeah, I was, I just was irritated about the media narrative around remote work and what was happening. Like remote work's over, we're all going to the office. And then you have an article that says the office is dead. And you're like, (laughs) what? Like what? And so, um, yeah. So I sent an invitation actually to my, the main place was to my email list. And I was just like, Hey, if anybody mm-hmm. wants to talk about this, I'm irritated. I know, I think it's more complicated than that. I'd love to talk and had 50 people grab spots on my calendar mm-hmm. and and it like completely decimated my calendar for a month, which is, it was delightful and terrible at the same time. Yes. But I had some amazing conversations and the biggest thing my biggest takeaway, I was trying to sort out like what's happening, like what is actually happening with the evolution of work. And there's some conclusions or a few big things that I'll, I'll give you. One is if you're listening to this and you're trying to sort this out in your organization, hybrid, remote, whatever, like if it feels like it's uncertain and you're just kind of stumbling around trying to figure it out, you're exactly where almost everybody else is. <laughs> um, everybody's trying to figure this out. Um, the people that are doing it the best, that are having the most success, are designing it, are co-designing the solutions with employees. Mm. And they're doing it with great intention. They're involving employees. They're phasing it. They're testing. They're coming back and saying, well, let's try this for the next six months mm-hmm. and we'll see what happens. And if right. whatever it is they're changing, when they're changing schedules, they're giving employees a whole bunch of notice. Because they're recognizing that when we change people's schedules, we disrupt people's lives Mm -hmm. and it takes time to fix that. It took us time to adapt when COVID tipped us upside down and it's Mm -hmm. taking time to adapt when you try to put us back right side up. And so there's that going on. The other thing that I thought was really interesting was I asked one of the questions I asked all the time when I talked to these organizations, I said, okay, what, you know, what are you doing? Are you in hybrid? Are you in office? Are you remote? What? And they'd tell me, and I'd say, what was the, like, what was the decision process? How did you arrive at this decision? Mm -hmm. 
And the most common response by a mile was executive preference. Mm. This is what our executives wanted to do. It's just a gut mm-hmm. feeling. We think it's the right thing. Culture is important. Everybody's coming back. But that's happening everywhere. And then some some CEOs are saying, well, production is suffering and communication is suffering. And you've got employees going like, no, it's not. Mm-hmm. No, it's not. I can show you evidence that it's not. So what are we doing? And so there's some really fragile things. And the 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 last thing I'll give you is, you know, hybrid is the most common solution. Everybody's going to some version of hybrid, two days in the mm-hmm. office, three days out, three days in, whatever, four, one, whatever. And what I heard from most of the people I talked to, most of the HR leaders I talked to was that hybrid was a compromise and it was largely a compromise that nobody is particularly thrilled about, that everybody was kind of like, well, it's the best we're going to get. And so what I would suggest is that we are in the second inning of a nine inning game when it comes to sorting this out. We are a long, there's a long ways to go. And like I said, if you are in the midst of this in your organization, um, go talk to your employees, right? Find out what they need. Um, the other thing I would say is that the, the organizations that are thriving through this too are really putting a lot of trust um, in their managers at the team level. They're giving them a whole bunch of autonomy mm-hmm. saying like, talk to your team and sort out what works best for you. Here's the non-negotiables, but after that, you guys sort it out. And that's working. It's working in a lot of places, but you got to have trust. If you don't trust your people, doesn't matter what your policy is. It's going to be flawed. Do you think that culture does suffer because people are hybrid or even in the office two days a week and, and at home three or some variation thereof, do you think culture is really suffering or is actually culture getting better? Based on the conversations I've had and the people I've talked to, I don't think those two things are interlinked. I think regardless of whether I, you know, I've talked to some remote companies that have really strong culture and people are super engaged. I talked to some companies that had all in person and they were really engaged and had strong culture. And I've talked to everything in between. The same is true on the other side. So it's not about hybrid or remote or, or in person. It is about the intention with which you manage your culture. Do you know, are values clear? Are behaviors clearly defined? Um, do your leaders behave in a consistent and, um, in positive way? Are they investing in relationships? All of those things are the things that build culture. And guess what? You can do that. You can do that virtually. You can do it in person. There, you know, there's all kinds of ways to do it. So I don't, I think it's a false narrative with those that are saying, no, our culture is suffering. If the culture is self suffering, it's because of poor leadership. It's not because of remote or hybrid or anything else. A second, drop the mic. Okay. So we are, we could keep going for hours, of course. And, um, but we have to move on to our favorite segment, which is one of our favorite segments, which is rapid fire questions. Are you willing to play? I am. I'm ready. All right, let's do this. What are bad recommendations you hear in HR being passed off as best practices? Never be friends with the people you manage. That's my favorite. Certainly there's a line there, but that's my favorite. Um, And the other is just annual performance appraisals like we've been talking about. Yeah. What advice would you give to someone just starting out in HR? 
know the business, know how the business creates value, and know that your job is not to enforce compliance and rules. Your job is to help people perform, right? To create a condition to cultivate performance and be about that. Study humans, don't study best practices or rules. When you get overwhelmed, how do you refocus? This is something I'm not great at. So I don't know that I have a great a great answer. I guess for me, it's going back to what's most important. I try to, I, I think, return to my values or what is it that I'm really trying to accomplish and then start from there. If you could have your own billboard that would reach millions of people, what would your message be? Love more, judge less. What is the book or books you've given out most often as a gift and why, and you cannot say your own? It's not my own. So um, Fierce Conversations by Susan Scott, I think is the best management and leadership book probably ever written. I think it's amazing. It's so full of incredible value. So I've given that one a lot. And the other one is Predictably Irrational by Dan Ariely. I think that's a that's a should be required reading for anyone that's in leadership in HR. That's great. Those are two we haven't heard yet. Who's getting employee engagement right today? That could be either a leader or a company. I'm not rather than name drop some company because then you know, like a month after this, they'll do something silly. I will say <laughs> what it is is. It's the organizations who are putting, and, and I see this over and over and over, that they're putting employee voice and employee needs at the center of how they are making decisions about their organization and how they do work. Mm. And so you can see this happening. There's companies that are doing return to office correctly. For example, they're co-designing it with employees. They're hearing, they're listening first, finding out what the needs are, and then they're deciding the path forward. So I think that's the common characteristic. What's the biggest challenge you think businesses will be facing in the next five years? I think it's going to be Figuring out how to exist in a world where work doesn't look anything like it used to look like. I think we are we're in at on the cusp of traditional employment as we've known it for the last hundred years, completely disintegrating in front of us. Um, how we work, where we work, the fact that we're attached to one employer versus many, the hours, the, the nature of the, the work we do, how we work with technology, all of that is shifting so quickly. And unless we adapt to a completely different frontier of work, I think a lot of organizations are going to get left behind. What is the main takeaway you want to leave with our listeners today? Work is a relationship for employees. And if you want to succeed as an organization, if you want to engage, you want higher performance, then you have to lead with relationship in everything that you do. Where can people go to learn more about you? JasonLortzen.com. If you can spell my name, you'll be able to find me or plug it into the Googles and you'll find lots of ways. But JasonLortzen.com or LinkedIn, that's where, that's where you'll find the most current and relevant stuff. And we will put both links 
um, in our notes section of this podcast. So thank you, Jason Lauritsen, for joining me today. It has been so enlightening and such an incredible pleasure. Thanks, Berta. Thanks for having me. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks so much for listening. If you haven't already left a rating or review in Apple Podcasts or Spotify, I'd really appreciate it. If you have any feedback or questions about the show, drop them in the comments wherever you listen or email podcast at hrmorning.com. To find me, go to BertaAldrich.com or send me a message on LinkedIn. We'll be back next week with more Voices of HR.